You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hi, everybody. It's Ken Davenport. We're back on the Producer's Perspective podcast. Today, we are heading back out on the road. Several weeks ago, when we were talking to booking agent Steve Schnapp on this very podcast, I vowed to speak to one of the presenters of Broadway shows at a leading touring house. Well, today, I am thrilled to have one of the leading presenters of touring Broadway in the country with us. Welcome to president of NAC Entertainment, Al Nacholino. Welcome, Al. Thank you, Ken. This is fun. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Al has been a presenter for over 35 years, putting up shows at theaters in Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and many more in New York State and Pennsylvania. He's been a producer of both shows on Broadway and on the road. He's an extremely active member and beloved member of the Broadway League. Uh, he's the vice chair of the road committee at the league. Uh, he's a founding member and chairman of the National Touring Council and is also a past president of the Independent Presenters Network, which he'll tell you all about in a little bit. But as you can tell from those credits, Al is a guy who eats, breathes, and sleeps the road. And every time I hear him speak about it at a conference, you can tell how much he loves it, which is why I'm so thrilled he's here today day. So, Al, tell me how you got started in the world of presenting Broadway shows. Oh, completely by accident. You know, I, I uh, first of all, I always had a, um, uh, let me use the word passion, which I'll use several times, I think, but I've always had a passion for entertainment and, and music uh, and acting. Uh, as, a, as a young person, I thought I could do all of that and found out very soon that I couldn't do very much of it very well. <laughs> Um, but I, I did, um, I did find my way again at a young age at managing a band and putting on the dances uh, at the high school and then on to college, running a ticket agency and promoting the concerts with the local concert promoter. But but didn't think I would be pursuing a career and ended up with a major in finance and and pursuing uh, that initially. But that changed in a short time and found my way to the venue business as an assistant manager of a brand new th arena and theater. And a couple of years later, at the young age of 24, I realized there wasn't any touring Broadway in the theater. And I remember ushering in my hometown at the local theater when touring Broadway would come. And I thought, well, maybe I can figure this out and do it while I'm still getting paid for my job. And kind of all started that way and went on to develop into promoting concerts uh, and a marketing agency where I specially specialize in handling uh, some of the large family shows in, all over New York State and Pennsylvania, Ice Capage and Globetrotters and Sesame Street and all those things. You know, a way to find um, a fee, some, some business that was bringing in fees while we were learning to take risks. <laughs> uh, and then it eventually evolved into um, more markets uh, and then pr producing and investing and raising money. And I just covered 35 years and you know, 35 seconds. That's it. That's the end of the podcast. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Uh, what was that first that first theater where you were not sure where you were working? It was a place called the Capitol Theater in Binghamton, New York, which no longer exists, unfortunately, because they, you know, they 
tore it down, put a brand new bank there, and which happened in many of the older northeastern communities. Can there were, for instance, Buffalo had over twenty theaters at one time, and places like Binghamton, seven or eight theaters in Syracuse and Rochester, and all those northeastern cities that were the big cities of America at the turn of the century had many vaudeville houses and theater houses and music houses and. And uh, they obviously, as time moved on, they, there wasn't a need for all of them. And so there was this consolidation. And we saw many theaters disappear in the Northeast, and this was one of them. And uh, subsequently, they renovated another one. And that's where I presented my very first show, which was Charlie's Aunt with Vincent Price and Roddy McDowell and Carl <laughs> And it sold out. And I thought, well, this is easy. <laughs> Your first show, Charlie's Aunt. Yes. Yeah. And what was the second one? Man of La Mancha. Did I do well as well? It did, with David Atkinson. And uh, I was 24 and 25 years old, and I uh, thought, okay, maybe I'll try to put a season together of four shows. And in the next season, I did, with Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, Equus, A Little Night Music, and um, I forgot the fourth one already. Absurd person singular. <laughs> so that was the first season, and then uh, then the reality hit home. Um, started trying to sell season tickets, and not all those shows sold, and and learned very quickly that there's substantial risk in our business. So, so some of my readers and listeners may not even know what a presenter actually does. We throw the word producer, of course, around a lot, but can you just explain what that means to be a presenter, what that meant for you then and now? Yeah, I mean, I just use the word risk a couple of times. We, we tend in the theater business to find nicer words to, to represent uh, what we do. You know, in Europe, they call us impresarios. Here, we say presenters. In the music business, it's a promoter, and I think that hard word better describes what it is we do, it's the same thing. We're the ones who decide to present, produce, promote a show, and we pay for it. We buy it from an agent who's representing a producer, and we bring it to our community. And then we do everything that's necessary to put that show on. Let's set aside a subscription for the moment, but the individual show, from renting the theater to staffing the theater to marketing it and getting all the rider requirements and, and hopefully get enough bodies in those seats when the lights go out or the curtain goes up to cover those expenses or maybe make a profit. Because the next day, we, those of us that do what we do, our asset has no value tomorrow. We live in a business that's no different than selling TV commercials or radio commercials or airline seats or hotel rooms. We can't add another thousand seats to the theater to make up for yesterday. So we're the ones taking on all of that local risk and hoping that we can generate enough excitement uh, and demand to sell tickets. That's very, this is why I love doing these podcasts, because I've never thought about it in that way. I think of New York producers having such this amazing amount of risk, but at least we have a bit of the ongoing inventory going forward. Exactly. Uh, not only are we selling tickets and hopefully we're going to have a long, open-ended run, but even when we close, we have a little piece of that show when it's done elsewhere. Right. You don't. You get it for a week. You get it for three nights. That's it. It's it. Huh. And and that's the risk that we all take. And what evolved in our business, and maybe this would have been a question of yours, which provided for a lot of stability on the road, and it came over many, many years. We can go backwards to talk about it, but is the subscription model. And so many of us, all of us now, uh, have substantial subscriptions and made commitments to building those subscriptions and spending a lot of time and money and retention and, and new new efforts to to hang on to those subscribers, learning about what their needs are, what their wants are, and developing new audiences 
and expanding the audiences so that we can keep our subscriptions and grow our subscriptions so, and reduce our risk. So let's talk a little bit about just about the 35 years of presenting that you've done. How, how has it changed? What, what's the biggest changes you've seen in those three decades now? Well, I think that, you know the obvious one is the economics, uh, but that change is there for everybody. The, you know the cost of shows, the cost of producing shows, the cost of presenting shows. But I think uh, for me, two of the biggest changes, and, and, and I'll start with what we call the product, which I don't like. I hate that word. But our shows, um, the quality of the touring theater industry is so much better than it ever used to be. And it started about 15, 20 years ago when the big blockbusters started to hit the road. And there was this commitment to deliver the shows as much as possible to mirror those shows that are here on Broadway. Cats did it, Phantom did it, Les Mis did it. Most recently, or not most recently, Lion King, Wicked, Jersey Boys, you can go on and on and on. But it also, uh, it was the same with Kinky Boots now or, you know, Drowsy Chaperone eight or nine years ago. So we've seen quality because there was a time when the bus and truck, as we used to call it, was very different. And um, what you saw on stage wasn't necessarily very good, at least physically, maybe not from an acting standpoint, but physically. So the quality of the production has really improved which I think um, has attributed to the, the, the stability of the subscriber and the new theater-goer. And then I think the other significant part of the business has changed that came along with uh, the commitment to, to these quality shows is what happened to the theaters and their communities. It, we call it the phantom back wall syndrome, but when phantom hit the road, most of the old theaters in America couldn't fit the show. So they all decided to do what they had to do, and that's blow out the back wall. Well, with blowing out the back wall, a lot of things happened, at least from my perspective. Not only did you physically change the theater, other parts of the theater became important. Uh, Seats, amenities, bathrooms, carpeting. So there was a serious commitment to restoring and renovating these magnificent community assets that existed all over the country. And then with that came... Uh, the embracement of it by the local people, local citizens, local community, local politicians, local leaders, uh, because they was, became a focal point, particularly in the, the heart of the old urban cores. And with that came everything, the redevelopment, a lot of downtown areas with that. So for me, those, those, the combination of those two things is really what's changed over the years. And do you think the, the quality change that we've had because of, and I remember reading about Cameron saying, I'm not sending Phantom of the Opera out on the road until I can deliver what it is in New York, that same experience. Do you think it's a result not only of producers like Cameron and uh, saying things like that, but also just thinking that, look, people come to New York more often now than they used to. Well, so I, the demands of your audience? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. I mean, you know, particularly from where I live and work in the Northeast, many of our patrons come to New York to see shows. So, there's a, yes, there's an expectation. But I think that expectation came even with those people who are further away in the Midwest or the West and who don't get to New York that often, when they see a quality show like a Cats or a Phantom or a Les Mis or any other show they expect similar quality with the other shows. And they respond when they're not. And um, and they can respond both ways. When they are, you get their support. When they're not, you can hear them loud and clear. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think you're right. And I think the combination of all of that helped. But clearly, look, we set a record this year on Broadway. And, and the biggest growth we've had is, of course, in our tourist business and not necessarily for the, the tri-state area, the combination of domestic and international tourists. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's right on. 
And what's also striking me now is you're not very different than the artistic director of a nonprofit theater in that you have to pick a season for your subscribers and you are going to get the wrath when they don't like it um, and hopefully the benefit when they do. So how do you go about choosing those? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's probably the, the, the single best question that's ignored by a lot of people who don't really understand it. Even people who work in it every day. If you don't know your market and you don't know your subscribers and you don't know how they buy and what they respond to, you can't hang on to them. And so you have to find the right balance of, of, of shows. Clearly, our subscribers now, the ones who are committed, want the best of the new shows. They know what's going on. They pay attention to Broadway. They want the best of new shows. They also want family shows because many of them are, our demos are, are higher than in New York. Our demos are 55 plus, and many of them have grandchildren, and many of them have older children. And so they want shows that they can bring their children to, I think, or their grandchildren to. I think the biggest surprise, with the utmost respect, this past season was the success Cinderella had on the road. It was a huge, huge hit. And it goes, oh, your subscribers aren't going to like it. Oh, guess what? They bought additional tickets, brought family, brought grandchildren. And that, for us, becomes a bit of audience development, too. Because once you get one of those young people into the theater with their mother or with their grandmother, they're coming back. They're coming back. If they've had an experience at Lion King or they've had an experience at Cinderella or any of that other type of show that's friendly and and familiar and and comfortable for them, they're coming back. They may not come back next year, but they're going to remember the first show they ever saw. Uh, because that's what happens when you go to the theater. Uh, it's so different. Not many people, I heard someone say this at the conference this spring, and I wish I could remember. Lynn Manuel, I think, said it. Um, you don't remember the first movie you saw, but you remember the first Broadway show you saw. Yeah, so we try to find balance. We try to find, I don't like the word revivals, I like the word classics. We try to find the shows that are the classics, that handful shows that can, you can bring back so, so very often. The new shows, and the family shows. And finding the right balance is, is key, and we work very hard at that. And also knowing the landscape, knowing what's coming up for next year versus this past season, what do I save for next year because I might have too much this year, and balancing that over the course of a couple seasons. Have you ever run into a situation where you've seen a show and then on Broadway and been like, God, I love this show so much, I just can't book it? Um, no, not me. Uh, I, I've come close to that saying, I love this show so much. I know it's not going to sell, but I have to bring it for many reasons. One, it might have won the Tony Award. Two, it might bring a whole new audience into to the theater that don't normally come. Or three, most importantly, it's important for our, our some people to see it because it's a big, beautiful piece of theater. Knowing full well, it may not sell. So let's talk. So we call that realistic expectations. (laughs) (laughs) I love that very fancy NBA word (laughs) phrase. I love it. But let's talk specifically for a second because I'm very curious about this. Um, So Fun Home, obviously, big Tony Award winning musical Mm -hmm. this year. I expect it will tour. I'm very excited about the possibility of that story getting all over the country. Right. Is that is that a show that you will book? Well, in an effort to be completely forthcoming, I'm involved in the show. I have an investment in the show, and I'm in love with the show. So I'm, I'm, you know, that's going to maybe taint my opinion a little bit. But in order to to be forthcoming, Uh, yeah, I think there are several reasons why. First of all. When a show wins the Tony Award, eventually everybody will find out about it. The, the idea that they don't, they will. Will it appeal to everyone? Maybe not. 
Is it a show that I think is going to sell as many tickets as Cinderella? Of course not. It's in a small little theater here. That's not insulting the show. That's completely realistic. Is it a show that I think my patrons will enjoy? I think they'll cry like I did, love it, and leave there remembering this incredible piece of theater. So, yeah, if I can find a way to do it. The only concern I have, and this is a small one, uh, it's very selfish, and, I, and Kristen and Mike, I apologize if you're listening. Uh, in a 3,000-seat theater, I'm a little concerned as to how it's going to play there, but I have complete confidence they'll figure that out because it is going from in the round to back to proscenium, and we'll have to figure that all out. Uh, and once we do, I think it'll really, really work well. So, yeah, I, I think you'll, we'll, they're going to have a, a very successful tour. So let's um, let's speak hypothetically uh, for a second, and I just want to understand how important that Tony Award is. Let's pretend you weren't involved for a second. And let's say American in Paris won the Tony Award. Mm-hmm. Do you think Fun Home would, would get out in the same way? Yeah, I do. I think those are two questions. Would it get out? Yes. Would it get out in the same way? Maybe not, because clearly winning the Tony Award says Chicago, L.A., Washington. It says, you know, you need and want that big show in your markets that won the Tony Award. It's important to those those really dedicated, committed theater goers. They want to see that show. They want to see the show that won the Tony Award. So I think it looks differently when it tours when you win the Tony Award. And for those of us in the secondary markets, the large secondary markets, we have a commitment. I have a commitment. If the show wins the Tony Award, I'm bringing it. I'm bringing it. Some way or for shape or form, it'll, I'll, it'll get, we'll play it. And that's the luxury of having a subscription base, too, because when you go back to that realistic expectation, and if, and if it applies to a specific show, and I'm not suggesting it does to Fun Home, then you have the luxury of saying, okay, I may not sell all the single tickets I will sell with another show that has a broader base audience, but I've got a subscription base, and they're going to enjoy it, and, and I'm doing what's responsible for it to them. Yeah, I have a feeling they'll thank you for it, yeah. actually, for yeah. bringing that. Have you booked in the past, or would you book shows that don't play in New York theater? I'm, uh, I'm, I have the reputation, unfortunately, of being one of those guys that says, well, if it hasn't played Broadway, how do you put it on a Broadway season? Now, having said that, I have done a few over the years. Uh, sometimes reluctantly, because I've, I've waited and then watched how they've sold and thought, okay, Something's going on here, and I'll have to do it. But as a matter of course, I typically will only book and program shows that have played on Broadway, uh, particularly, I think, because of where I'm working, the part of the country I'm working, and their familiarity with what's going on on Broadway. What do you think about the whole non-union tour controversy in that regard? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of parts of that conversation Having grown up and worked in the smaller little markets upstate New York where the large shows just won't fit in the theaters. They won't fit in the theaters because the stage is too small or the capacities are too small. The Binghamton New Yorks or the Elmira New Yorks or the York Pennsylvanias, there's a community who wants to see theater. The only way they've been able to see theater, right or wrong, is when the show gets scaled down and goes to a non-equity or non-union production because the economics come down and shrink with it and it becomes fiscally possible. It's impossible to do a full production show in those markets for several reasons. Again, because of the physical limitations, the size of the venue, but more importantly, the size of the markets. So you can't go in there for a full week. So I've always felt, and I've been participant in many dialogues with equity over the years, that you know, there is a need and 
we've got to find a way to serve it, like it or not. We're all we should work together to do that, and I think we've had healthy dialogue about it. Having been a company manager for a non-union tour, that's one of the first jobs I ever got. I played Harlingen, Texas. You know, one of these small theaters that there's no, they didn't have the number of people to fill a theater more than one night a week. Right. And we barely filled that. So I've always... Uh, well, in the first two shows I mentioned that I, I ever presented were one-nighters. You just can't tour that in the same way. There yeah. have, there's a place for it. It's just where is that place? And how it's done. Yeah, exactly. How far out do you book? Like how? This is something I talk to Steve a lot about. How quickly can a show get on the road? Is it speeding up or slowing down? Yeah, it's speeding up. It's really speeding up. I think it's speeding up for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, we've created these. I like the, I use business terms, unfortunately, more than I should. But these franchises around the country, and, and that's these locations, cities, performing arts centers that have these wonderful subscription series. You know, the combination of the independent markets and what BAA has done very successfully with their markets. There's high demand. There's high demand, and uh, as soon as a show opens on Broadway, there's some sense that there's going to be a life after Broadway. They find an agent, and that agent's on the phone long before sometimes the show's even, the nominations even come out for the Tony Awards. I mean, I'm almost completely done for 16, 17. Wow, that far in advance. And I'm starting to book some shows for 17, 18 right now, because some of them that are going out 16, 17, I just didn't have room for. So we're pushing this. I just came from a meeting now, moving a couple shows into the 17-18 season because I don't have any room in 16-17. Uh, yeah, and we've had, we, we, as an industry, we've talked about that because with that also comes some fallout when you start so far in advance, you know, because seasons get filled and then there's not enough room for all the shows. And But I believe that that's the, the, the process of supply and demand and that stuff figures itself out and there's a reason the show might not happen. But yes, to your question, it has really speeded up um, and... We're we've all we're all players in that equation right now. You've also produced on the road, produced here. Is there a difference from being a great Broadway producer as opposed to being a great road producer? Do you need different skills? Well, that's a great question. I think certainly being a, a, a great Broadway producer is an extraordinary set of skills and uh, and responsibilities going with it. But there are many great Broadway producers who do not know the road. And uh, what they have learned, and, and I've been participant in this over the years, is that you need to find your way to people who do know the road. Uh, good general managers, uh, good agents, uh, people who understand the landscape, know the marketplaces, uh, know the players, know the deals, and, and try to do it and not go into it in any kind of a cavalier or blindfolded you know, approach to it because it is different. It, it is different. Um, because we're taking on the weekly risk, um, whereas the producer is taking on the initial risk. But once he decides to capitalize and build a show for the road, it immediately gets passed on to those buyers across the country. And so the question is always, I, how much will I make? Will I recoup? And the stability of the road is provided for at least almost most shows recouping. And then, of course, you get a second year, you, you know what comes with that, you know, depending, once again, how big the show is. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're, the, the producing part's not a different... Well, let me say this. The creative process gets a little tricky sometimes, too, because converting from what's on stage in New York to putting it into six-tractor trailers, uh, it can be very challenging. And getting your creative people to make those... Um, uh, to make some... You know, to adapting to some of that, I think, sometimes has been challenged. But I think there's a better understanding of that now. 
What do you think the current state of the road is right now? You know, I often say to guests on the podcast, if Broadway were a patient, what state would that patient be in? Critical, intensive care, healthy? How do you, what do you consider the road I, I, right now? I think the road is very, very healthy and taking a really good care of itself. I think that uh, we've, we did almost uh, 14 million people on the road last year in attendance. That's full national, full the national tours equity, not the non-equity tours, just the, the, the first-class tours, uh, grossed about a billion dollars, um, healthy, very healthy. We had a meeting yesterday of um, what we finally referred to as the Entry Industry and Road Presenters Committee and did a little canvassing of how renewals are going and how subscriptions are going this thus far this season, and everybody's res- renewal rates are up. Everybody's growing at 3 to 4%. Yeah, we're healthy. We're very healthy right now. For the big hits out there right now. There are many of them, uh, which is really nice. I mean, this past season, I mean, there were several. I mean, I think you, you can you know them in Motown and Kinky Boots and Cinderella. You know, a show like Pippin was, I think, an extraordinary surprise for our subscribers. They, I had never, ever presented a production of Pippin over the years. I mean, if, you know, just think about the last time it was on Broadway. And if, if you go back to my little model where I don't do it unless it's... <laughs> of course, it had been on Broadway many years ago. I... I um, our audience loved loved it. Um, so there are a lot of big hits. A Phantom, of course, uh, is is just killing them again. Booked very smartly. Smaller runs than the, than the last time, of course, it was touring. Big business. Um, the, the the big blockbusters continue to sell well. Wicked and Lion King are, are it's just been beautiful hits. And of course, the Book of Mormon. I mean, I I, I, I got to be careful when you start naming titles because you forget somebody. You know? <laughs> But no, it's, um, you know, I th- there, we have been able, I think, to measure uh, very smartly this, the potential success and sales of, of our respective shows. They're not all going to sell out, uh, but they pretty much are doing what we expect them to do. And, um, and the quality, again, is great. So a lot of, a lot of nice surprises this year. Now, tell me a little bit about the Independent Presenters Network, which, you know, I was the company manager on Thoroughly Modern Millie, which is when I first came across that phrase and that right. organization. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, that was the first show, by the way, that we really were invested in. Um, several years ago, uh, it became aware to us for many different reasons um, that with the growth of the road and the road changing and the deals changing and the costs going up, that there was an organization called at that time something different than Broadway Across America, but they were very organized, and they were working as a unit, and the independents were operating very independently, and you know, once in a while talking to each other. So there was a need, a very simple need, to get people who worked on their own, either performing arts centers or independent presenters like myself, who didn't have the ability to come to New York on a regular basis to see and look at each other and talk about what they were doing and, and figure out a way to, to work as a group uh, and and find some way of helping each other. Um, what became immediately clear was one of the things that we had to do, which uh, Broadway Cross America was already doing and which some of us were doing individually, was to commit to helping develop new shows and being part of that process and investing in shows and, and, and just being part of, of, of delivering new shows to the road. 
as well as sharing ideas and the classic networking and all that other stuff that goes along with when you learn from other people, which everybody admittedly did. Um, and so we grew up, so to speak, uh, by working as a whole, yet still being very, very independent, um, by helping each other and committing to this uh, process of, of investing and co-producing and whatever else came along. And, of course, Millie was the first, first really big one we did. And you've done a number of shows yeah, since then. we have, and multiple shows in, in the same season. Two seasons ago, we were significantly invested in Kinky Boots, Matilda, at a lesser extent, and Cinderella and Pippin. Uh, you know, and then many, sometimes it's not the, the aggregate, it's could be five or six or eight or nine or ten that decide to invest in a show. Um, and, and so many shows. We were committed to three or four shows for this coming season. So, um, you know, we, we, we're now part of that. All producers would love to have the road presenters, all of us, is part of their producing process because with that comes a commitment to see it grow and come out there after Broadway. And, and sometimes, Ken, even though it might not be financially successful in New York, we've toured many shows that haven't recouped here on Broadway. Many of us have. Uh, and so hopefully you make a little money on the road or a lot of money on the road that goes back towards the mother company, which eventually can help that a little bit. So we learned early on that it was important, uh, and, and we continue to, to work together. You made some good picks. That that season alone sounded like a, a yeah, good season. Well, we, we, we've made some good ones, and we've made some bad ones. <laughs> haven't we all, Al? Haven't we all? Uh, you're very active in the league. You know, every time I, I go to a conference, you're always up there speaking. And, and as I mentioned, anymore, I let everybody else speak. Yeah, <laughs> it always looks like you're holding court. Or you should hold court up there. Um, and tell me, look, the Broadway producers and presenters in the same organization. Even though at the time, some look, we if I have a tour, I want you to pay me more money for that tour. You want to pay less. There's a natural, quote unquote, adversarial relationship in that. Um, and yet we're all in the same organization because we all want to be uh, theater to be successful. What's the what's the relationship like right now? What what do you th- is it more adversarial, less contentious? How how are things? No, I think it's we've come miles. I mean, if, if, you first of all have nailed with the question the reason why I believe that there's been this wonderful synergy that's evolved at the league where everybody now has a better understanding of what everybody else is doing. Not just Broadway producers and Broadway presenters, general managers and agents and everybody else. You know, our goal 20 years ago, I remember when we started something called the National Touring Theater Council, we were members of the League of American Theaters and Producers, but nobody really really knew or cared about presenters. They were the guys who were going to give us money and we went on the road. They didn't care what we did. And oh, and by the way, the deals were different then. They weren't participation deals. They were just looking to get guarantees and some other money. I mean, so they didn't care. So as the business changed, there was a need for everybody to say, hey, these are my expenses and these are mine. You don't think, don't think you can come to my town and I don't, it doesn't cost me anything to put on a show. Because there's a building with 3,000 seats and we have to pay electricity and the air conditioning and the 35 uh, ushers. And it was, so in a very simple way, our goal was to make everybody better educated about what each other is doing. And um, now I think we've had tremendous success in doing that. Um, look, the CTI program devotes not only time to producers, but bringing presenters in and general managers in. We want these young people who decide to take the course and to know all about the business. So there are producers today that will tell you they, they know so much more about presenting uh, than they ever did before. And I think uh, 
Look, we did, let me make this a, be really simple answer to your question. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary of the Spring Road Conference. And part of our growth has been the extraordinary numbers. We had over 700 people there this year. And there's like, oh, all these people coming in from the road. We don't know how to manage them all. So we dissected it. Of that 700 this year, 300 were from New York City. Think about that. So exponentially, our growth has been with the New York community coming to the road conference, which is wonderful. It's great. It means they want to know it, they want to understand it, because the more they understand, the better they can manage what they're doing and the better they can negotiate and understand and have fair deals for everybody. And when that happens, everybody wins. I tend to make my answers a little long. I'm sorry. No, they're perfect. And you just encapsulated what I've felt myself over the past 10 to 20 years of my time in the business is that yeah, it felt like New York producers were a little snobbish about how we dealt with the road. Oh, yeah, we'll give you the show when we're ready, and you'll pay what we want you to pay, and be lucky that you were giving this to you. And now it does feel like we're so much a part of the same team, and then Broadway is not just right here in New York City. Broadway stretches across the country. Yeah, I mean, I give Paul Libin complete credit for this. Uh, Paul, who works for Jude Jamson and and been, you know, a stalwart in the business for many, many years. He says that the longest street, Broadway, is the longest street in America. He's 100% right about that. And one of the things that New York producers have to remember is that 65% of our audience comes from outside this city, which means they are growing up on theater in local markets like yours. No question. So how they're getting exposed to it, what they're learning... And us, them actually getting here may be a result of all the work that you're doing in your markets. And, and, and with because we all have so many subscribers, part of our commitment to them is to communicate with them. And today with the social media ability that we, we so easily tell them about what's going on on Broadway, so easily tell them about what shows are coming on the road, or so easily tell them about the Tony Broadcaster. So we keep them very informed. They're much more aware now. And they become better patrons and better educated patrons about the theater business. Are deals changing at all? You know, I, one of the arguments I hear constantly is like, oh, we're charging the same guarantees now that we charged 20 years ago. The guarantees haven't gone up as like our expenses have changed. You know, I, I stand up and get into many arguments with some of our pr- producing friends about that. And, and for your listeners who might not understand this, it, I respond very quickly yeah, it might not be the guarantees have gone up significantly, but now we have something called a variable guarantee that used to try to hide under something called royalty, and now you get 70 instead of 60%. So tell me what the company share looks like versus the old company share. And when you start looking at company share, uh, I think you see that's where the growth has been. And to defend the producing side, that's where it they need to be because their costs have gone up as much as ours, if not more. But it's come in different ways. Higher participation, the recognition that it's not royalty, that it's a, a variable guarantee. So if a show is getting a $300,000 guarantee and there's a 10% variable guarantee, the guarantee just became 400000 if you gross a million dollars. Yeah, so it might say three hundred on the contract, but it's really four hundred, And then they get their percentage afterwards. So... Um, but we all know that. And as soon as I say that, there's a little setback and they say, okay, let's do it. Because it's a reality. It's numbers. They come, they're delivered differently, but they're going up. And they need to, and they should. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be careful about that because I'm always trying to find the balance for, for all of us. Um, 
Okay, our last question, which has now been called uh, the genie question uh, by many of the listeners out there. I ask this of all my guests. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin knocks on your office door. I imagine you will book Aladdin when it comes Absolutely. to your market. Absolutely. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> but when that genie knocks on your theater and says, Al, thank you for booking us here, and thank you for your incredible dedicated service to the road over the past 35 years, I'm going to grant you a wish. One wish. What is the one thing that drives you so crazy about this business? The one thing that keeps you up at night, that gets you so angry? What is the one thing that you'd ask me to change or get rid of with the snap of my fingers? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I guess I wished that the other half of our business, the creative side, would learn to let themselves learn as much about the business as the business side did, uh, as the producers and presenters allowed them each other to help each other learn. I wish we could get the creative side, I mean, to a certain extent, equity to their credit really has tried to do that. I wish we could get the creative side to, to understand uh, some part of that as well, the risks that producers take, the costs that presenters take on. Um, I mean, I probably could come up with a better answer than that, but um, that's one that's, I think, completely frustrating for many of us, for many of us. That drives me crazy because it, you know, it's passed on to all of us when it can't be fixed or done better or correctly. But other than that, I'm particularly pleased after all these years, Ken, to see how healthy the industry is at every level um, with... Um, the commitment to um, learning and understanding what we all do. I mean, our presenters know more about producing now because they've invested, you know, they, they, because they've become part of the process. And um, producers are, are better producers for the road because they've allowed themselves to learn about our economics. Um, and, and so that's all worked better for everybody. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that the road is in the current state that it is, which is healthy, uh, is because of people like you. That's kind um, uh, Ever since I attended my first conference and listened to you talk about the road and watched you talk to other people about it and get people inspired about it to learn more about it, uh, you're just one of the incredible leaders this industry oh, has very kind. Uh, for the road. And thank you for it because thank the you. road, as Paul Libin said, Broadway is the longest street in America. Um, New York producers need it. Um, our audiences need it. Uh, the theater needs it. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for being here. All of you, tune in next time. Got some great guests coming up. Don't forget to subscribe. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now.
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.